Christopher O'Brien is a paranormal investigator and author. He's written a handful of books. Um, and the, his most recent book, which just came out, is called Stalking the Trickster. And in this book, he tackles the paranormal phenomena and tries to sum it up and tries to give it a, a framework, in essence, an answer, which is tough because it's an unanswerable concept, really. Um, and I'm impressed with it. I'm impressed with the book. I, I, he's got a nice insight into this, and he's got a nice, um, pretty funny uh, writing style, which I, which I found very engaging. And I've read another one of his books called Secrets of the Mysterious Valley, about a valley on the New Mexico-Colorado border. Strangely enough, I, I have a lot of kinship with the guy. We both live out west. We both live in big rural valleys. And, uh, and we've both had a set of experiences. Uh, his sounds much more rich than mine in a lot of ways. We've both had a set of experiences that, that um, leave us very open um, and genuinely curious to some extremely uh, bizarre phenomena. And uh, I'm going to recommend this book highly. He also has an excellent website called OurStrangePlanet.com. I'll repeat that. OurStrangePlanet.com. I um, can't speak highly enough of the guy. Super funny, super engaging, a genuine guy. And, uh, and actually, I'm super happy with the interview. This interview was recorded on November 18th, 2009. So um, I'll start. Hey, Chris, um, nice to talk to you again. Good to be back. Yeah, um, just so the listeners know, uh, Chris and I had a really strong conversation yesterday. We talked on the phone for a while, and uh, and that was when I asked him to, to do this audio interview. I shared a bunch of my stories, and he, he shared a bunch of his stories. So uh, so him and I, between the two of us, are a little bit up to speed. And a lot of it was on the trickster story. And one of the things I want to really focus on in this interview format or this conversation format is just more of the personal stuff and, and the fact that these experiences tend to be so intensely focused on the individual, which which seems to, um, oh, it, it sure points it away from, from, you know, ETs flying here on a metal spaceship doing, you know, collecting data on us. Uh, something more, much more intimate is going on. Agreed. Good. I thought you would agree to that. <laughs> well, it could be that, too. We can't factor anything out or anything in. We just have to be open-minded and, you know, just uh, be intelligent about it. And if we factor that that in, the you know, the sort of ETH, uh, it just seems like that they, that whatever's going on, if they if they in fact are you know extraterrestrials somehow interacting with this, then then they are significantly more bizarre than than we have a, a, a conception for them. Uh, that. That's a really good point. I, I think it's pretty anthropomorphic of us to think that we're important enough for anything out there to come and visit us. Uh, we're very primitive, violent. We're not very evolved. And uh, we have a lot of, um, I think, uh, cultural development to undergo before I think we're worthy of any sort of attention from out there. Uh, <laughs> this, is not, this is not an episode of Star Trek. Yeah, but at the same time, this, the, 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 this trickster phenomenon is something that's been, you know, with us since we, you know, in essence, you know, climbed down from the trees. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, you know, runs the whole, the whole breadth of our, of our history. Correct. So, so somehow or another, something thinks we're important enough to, to interact with us. Well, again, I, I really have a sense that the trickster is actually a constellation of, of, um, forces and energies that 
all spring from the collective unconscious of humanity. I think uh, all of us together across the, uh, you know, in this big, huge closed system we call Earth, I think all of us collectively are manif manifesting this uh, force and energy in our lives. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not something, uh, I think, by literal definition, truly other. Uh, I have a sense that it's like each one of us, uh, uh, in terms of our consciousness, we're all like individual synapses in a large brain. I think a portion of uh, of our energy identifies with certain primal symbols within the uh, within the collective. And you know, it doesn't matter what culture you're in. Uh, you know, I think that the trickster the trickster is found globally. We all just kind of put different details on. You know, have different names, have different descriptions. But I think the force or energy that is that we, for lack of a better term, call trickster, um, is is a collective thing. It's a constellation of uh, of all of our of all of our thinking. Yeah, here I'm going to tell you a story. This is something I, when we talked on the phone yesterday, I kept on. I wanted to tell you this so bad because I think you'll get a kick out of it. But I, I held off until till just now. So um, this happened in 2006. I would have been 44 years old, and this was just as I was getting. There was kind of this compulsion at the time to uh to start this this project this documentary project uh about um the ufo abduction phenomenon and i kind of in the back of my mind it wasn't in the forefront of my mind i knew that there was that the, that the, my experiences had some reality to them i was in a in an intense heavy-handed state of denial and i didn't want to focus on them and i didn't want to deal with them but i knew that 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 was that was proving to be difficult i knew i was going to have to look in, into them at some point so that's kind of the headspace i was in uh, for this story, I work in an outdoor school, and and uh, and I have uh, sensitive skin where I can get sunburned really quickly. So uh, so I'm always on the look lookout for a, for a new sunblock because these other ones kind of make my face itchy. Uh, I was working at the school, and and uh, a few people pointed out that Neutrogena 45 is the sunblock I should get. And I was like, oh, okay, great. So two or three people told me that, and so I said, great. So I came home from uh, the town that I was working in, and came back to my little hometown here. And I went to the locally owned uh, health food store, and uh, I asked if they had it, and they didn't. And I went to the locally owned drug store, and they didn't have it either. And so on my drive home uh, from the little main street of my town, there's a great big giant grocery store that, um, you know, I don't really like shopping there. I prefer to shop in the little places. And I was going to turn in and, ask, and see if they had it there, and I, and I literally couldn't turn the wheel to per turn into their parking lot, so I just kept on going home and didn't worry about it. As I was driving home, I realized they were there was the, it was the annual trash pickup that they have along the highway. And my house is right along the highway. I live in a great big western valley that, um, you know, just straight highway right down the middle of the valley. So um, these trash bags were being piled up, and it was obvious that this was the weekend it was happening. And um, I figured, great, I'll, I'll uh, put in some of my own time and take some trash bags and walk along the highway and clean up some trash. So I pulled into my house just walked straight into the barn and got a couple trash bags and stuffed them in my pocket and I walked out to the highway and I figured I would walk from my house it's about a half mile to the stop sign I would clean up trash on that side I'd cross the road and do the half mile back to my house again and so I would collectively you know do a mile worth of trash I figured that was good enough so I walked along the highway and I started picking up the trash and uh, it was kind of gross actually lots of cigarette butts and stuff it was wet and kind of a rainy drizzly day and as I was walking and picking up the trash, it got worse. The weather just all of a sudden it started to snow, and it was that it was this was April, so it was that crappy sort of uh, you know wet, cold sleet kind of coming down. And so that 
you know, I kept on going. I figured, okay, I'm going to go to the stop sign. I told myself I was going to go to the stop sign. Uh, so I keep on walking, and um, and then, it, you know, it really starts to rain on me, and it gets really ugly. And, and, I, and I figure, like, well, you know, I'm soaked now. I might as well just persevere and just, you know, go through with this. So I keep on picking trash. I make it all the way to the stop sign. And I'm not kidding. At the base of the stop sign, at the post, leaning up against the post like a little display item, was a bottle of Neutrogena 45. <laughs> Go figure. And and I, I I can't put it strong enough how weird this was for me. Um, I mean it was it was it wasn't it wasn't subtle. It felt like I was kind of slapped in the face with a very bizarre and sort of funny paranormal thing. Um, I've since kind of dissected the story and. I mean, I was doing this altruistic thing, you know, I was doing this nice thing, you know, picking up trash for the community. And, um, and then I'm confronted, I mean, literally confronted with a signpost. Uh, it just, it just struck me as so intense and, and it sounds silly to say this, but I knew, I knew it was connected with, with my other experiences, which, you know, some people would, uh, quantify as like UFO experiences, but I knew like at a gut level that this thing was connected somehow. Yeah, uh, it sure sure would appear that way to me. I mean, what what was your, uh, I mean, back engineering the experience? I mean, what, what what did you get from it? I mean, what's what's the uh, the lesson, the clue, the the moral, the you know? On, what, a, on, what do you think? on one level, I guess it felt like I was at that from that point on self aware that there was, you know, I, don't, I guess the the only term I can use is magical. Um, you know, that there were, like, magical forces in play behind the curtain. Now, what are the odds? I mean, uh, when was the last time you found uh, skin block uh, anywhere? Oh, I mean, sunblock. you know, it's, I mean, I, you know, it just was so bizarre because it was exactly the bottle I was looking for. Yeah, you know, it would have been, uh, you know, it, it, just to find it on the side of the road in a, at the place that I had decided to turn around. It was that, you know, I could have turned around at any point before then, and I still would have felt fine about doing my, my little good deed for the neighborhood uh, and picking up trash, but it was at that exact point where I had said, I'm going to turn around at that point. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think that story sort of factors in oh, to saying yes to looking into these sort of life experiences of mine. I find it interesting that it should be leaning up against a stop sign. Yeah, and that's actually some people have sort of said, well, you should have stopped. You should have never gone any further. You should never look into this. And uh, and I guess you could read it that way, but um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't understand. I, I think I think possibly it was telling you to stop and uh, you know pay attention. Well, then certainly the pay attention you know uh, uh, button got pushed in my brain. That's for sure. So. Well, we all have uh, experiences like that. Uh, I mean, this one is particularly impressive because of the timing involved. And of course your skeptical agnostic would say, well, it was just, you know, it was just one of those billion to one coincidences that, um, you know, that occur every day on the planet. But I think, I think it's the lesson is in the, you know, the odds of something like that happening are just uh, astronomical. And, you know, I'm a firm believer in, in, personalizing our experiences uh, as it relates to, to a trickster energy. Um, most people, when they hear uh, the term trickster, when they, when they sort of tap into whatever front-loading or programming they have around um, this particular energy or force, they, I think the knee-jerk reaction is to consider it to be 
a negative term, a, a term that um, is unsettling. And one of the things that I've really attempted to do um, through my research is point out that the trickster is, is an amoral force. It, it's not here for you know is any sort of um, agenda, I think, in terms of, of uh, positive or negative, good or bad. I think basically the trickster is here to, you know, I, I often equate the trickster as being like the sound of one hand slapping. Uh-huh. You know, like the, the Zen cone of one hand clapping. I think the trickster just, sometimes it, it, that force is there to kind of wake us up, give us a smack on the head or a slap. And uh, it's kind of like, you know, the ultimate uh, trickster, <laughs> the ultimate trickster uh, the first thing that we deal with as as sentient humans in the Western world is we get smacked on the butt when yeah, we're born. Yeah, exactly. So, so that I think that kind of programs us to, uh, in in a sense, to uh, to be aware of that that wake up slap. And uh, and it sounds like you had a a, <laughs> a pretty uh, obvious uh, example of that. Yeah, that one felt a little more like I was just being poked. There's a guy that I work with uh, on some of this stuff. Um, he keeps on using the reference where, where he says, you know, sometimes I put peanut butter on the dog's tongue just because I think it's funny. And, uh, and he says that's kind of what he sees is going on with us. Uh, you know, in essence, they're just putting peanut butter on our tongue just to, like, watch us, like, you know, sit there on the carpet and, you know, and lick incessantly in that funny, you know, way that a dog would. <laughs> that's a good one. Um, you got to try that sometime. Oh, put peanut butter on the dog's tongue? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's uh, the dog seems to enjoy it, but it is it does make everyone in the room laugh. I'll tell you. Um, so, hey, you uh, do you have any direct experience with the trickster phenomena? Oh yeah, I wouldn't know where to start. Um, I've kind of fine tuned myself to be uh, to be aware of these types of i don't know uh coincidences synchronicities uh you know there's various terms that you can use to describe it but yeah i have uh the very first um investigation that i went out as a uh an aspiring uh investigative journalist uh covering at the time uh in 90 or early 93 i actually had given a uh a new year's eve uh, party and I was walking through the house at one point. I just, there was about 30 people in the house. And I was walking through, and there was like three or four knots of people, you know, through the house that um, all were talking about a pretty uh, riveting-sounding UFO event. And I realized uh, pretty quickly that each of the little groups thought that they were the only ones, uh, you know, that were aware of this. That it, you know, just each individual thought that they were kind of standalone and seeing these two uh, large kind of impressive ovals that flew down out of the uh, mountains and out over to the valley. And, um, and so I instantly thought, hey, this could, be, uh, this could be a really interesting little newspaper article for a small-town paper. And uh, so I started interviewing people and then brought everybody together and said, you know, there was like six people that had seen this thing unbeknownst to each other. And, and um so I started interviewing everybody, and then uh, somebody chimed in. Oh, that was the night that they had a cattle mutilation down, uh, you know, two counties uh, south of us, and uh, that really kind of got me going. So I um, I started doing some research, and and uh, one of the first calls that I made was to my local county sheriff to find out if they had had any official 
cattle uh, deaths that had been reported over the years. And uh, I had found out uh, pretty early on that my county had not officially had any reports that had made any sort of databases. So I talked to the sheriff, and, and he said, oh, yeah, there were cases back in the 70s and uh, even uh, into the early 80s, but, you know, they were never publicized. So he said he would check into uh, – uh, you know their files in the basement and see if he could pull out anything for me so much to my surprise i he didn't he said i can't promise anything he says we don't even have files on some of the murder cases that we had back then so you know don't hold your breath so so much to my surprise a couple three days later he uh he showed up at my house with a handful of uh polaroid photographs that um had these you know pretty graphic um you know pictures of these uh horribly disfigured animals and uh i a little taken aback and only two of the 24 pictures had any writing on them and so i got a real crash course in how to uh become an investigator and it didn't take me very long i was able to find the deputy that took the pictures um he was still alive and uh, retired most of them were from this uh, mid mid 70s but there was one that um he identified that came from a ranch that was just in the town right next to mine swatch county is a huge county it's about the size of uh, connecticut and this is the Mysterious Valley. This is in, yeah, in the San Luis Valley in, in uh, south central Colorado, north central New Mexico. And uh, I lived in the northern part of the valley. So uh, along with the deputy's help, I was able to ID all the, uh, all the cases and uh, in the ranches where they occurred. And, of course, I wanted to, uh, to find out more. So I, I called the, uh, you know, the woman who owned the ranch just in the town next to ours. Turns out her bull had been mutilated uh, the first week of June 1980, which was 13 years, you know, prior to to my little uh, <laughs> investigation. And and she invited me out uh, to to talk uh, to her and her family. So I went out there and set up an appointment. Went out there and you know, I interviewed the family all separately and compared their accounts and everything. And and basically they all agreed. They were sitting around um, having dinner one night in in June, and uh, it was uh, just just at dusk, maybe just a hair after dusk, and they heard this helicopter fly right over their house, really super low, and uh, they thought it was kind of strange, uh, but you know they didn't really jump up and go run out and look at it or anything. But uh, the sound faded, and then all of a sudden, 20 minutes later, they heard they heard they heard it again, and this time it sounded like it was hovering uh, across the street. It, you know, it came up from from a direction they had disappeared in originally, and was coming back the other way, and the direction it originally, uh, you know, towards it flew originally from the north to the south, and then they heard it in the south coming back to the north. So, at this point, they realized, hey, there's something kind of unusual going on. So they all ran outside, and, and this thing flew right over their house. I mean, it was less than 50 feet above them. Um, it was a an early 50s style whirly bird, like you see on the opening uh, sequence of, of the Mash TV show. Sure. And. Uh, you know, they they thought it was really strange because it was like an antique flying over their house, and it was uh, a weird kind of mustard yellow color, is how they described it. And no identifying marks um, or anything, and and so it you know thumped right over their house, and uh, so they kind of scratched their heads, went back in, finished dinner, and next morning she went out to uh, um, check on the on the animals uh, in the pasture where it seemed like the helicopter was coming from. And uh, they found their prized seed bowl mutilated. And, uh, of course, you know, this is a really horrific uh, financial loss, and, and they were uh, <laughs> not not very happy about it. So they 
the calls around to all the airports and aircraft mechanics and rental places and anybody that would could possibly have a, a an idea of who owned this helicopter or where it came from and just every call they just got laughed at and people you know were telling them no you must be mistaken it couldn't have been that they're in museums nobody flies these things they're astronomically expensive to operate they have less than a 90 mile range uh you know you must be wrong and they said no we're not wrong so i'm interviewing them this is in what uh late january 93 13 years after the fact and um or almost 13 years later and so I go home the next morning. Uh, I, I go home that, that afternoon. The next morning I get up and I'm typing up my notes. I like to, you know, get my notes uh, uh, transcribed while everything's fresh in my, my mind. So I'm typing up my notes and I, I hear this thump, thump, thump sound. I look out my window and flying right over my house is an old 1950-51 uh, whirlybird uh, yellow in color. And uh, I wasn't the only one that saw it. You know, my girlfriend, her, her daughter, my neighbor saw it. And uh, I instantly knew right there that uh, something very bizarre was going on and, and that this was not aliens from another planet, that this is some sort of trickster energy that was operative. And it took, took some convincing on my part to, uh, to myself uh, that, you know, I had a hard time believing my eyes. It was such, it was such a uh, smack in the face. Again, there was a sound <laughs> I, that one I know that feeling. Slapping that... Uh, it really took some convincing on my part to convince myself that the experience was real. But I tried to, like, come up with every single explanation that I possibly could to explain it away. And, of course, I made all the calls to all the airports and all the mechanics and rental places and stuff. And, and, and they laughed at me. And they said, these things haven't flown in decades. I, you, you know, why are you calling me with this cockamamie story you know i had a couple people hang up on me and say well you, you get out of here you know they they didn't even believe the possibility that i could have actually had a real experience so you asked for an experience that that was the one and boy i'll tell you that that really changed my life because i became a full-time investigator literally um as a result of that that experience well that's fascinating because i you know in a funny way I became an investigator at the with that experience of the of the sunblock finding the sunblock you know in in Oh, I guess an investigator is a strong word, but I guess I'm investigating myself. It'll, it was the impetus, you know, one of the key things that, that convinced me I had to look into my own personal experiences. Um, now, here, like, it, it's so strange that, you know, like, if it was really a paranormal, like, I have this kind of preconceived idea what paranormal experiences. I mean, I, I picture, you know, like, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, ladies dressed in, in outfits from 200 years ago carrying a lantern, like walking down uh, dimly lit hallways. That's my, you know, preconceived idea of a paranormal experience. Um, but this helicopter in full daylight doesn't match that. Uh, no. <laughs> and that no, would... it, it, it was, and it was real. There was nothing holographic. There was nothing, nothing at all to suggest that it wasn't, that it was anything but a real totally manifest object and uh i mean i could hear the sound of the rotor i could hear the sound of the the wind uh, i could hear the the engine sound it actually kind of wheeled sideways as it got over my house and i saw a glint in the the door that looked almost like a camera lens flashing uh, at the at one point the sun hit hit some something glass or something reflective and there was like a glint coming out the door uh, very very weird uh <laughs> Well, you yes, know, I, it's, it's, you know, is it like, the, you know, on one level, is it, you know, the secret government that, that um, 
is just messing with you and they, they somehow, uh, you know, tapped your phone or something like that. I mean, that's, that's no. improbable, but, uh, no, no, no way. No way. I mean, I, I was a nobody. I was just, you know, researching an article for a little paper that had circulation of less than 500. Uh, there's just no way. Uh, wow. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I kind of knew the answer to that before I even asked the, the secret yeah. government question. It's a rhetorical I, question. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but I had to like, you know, you have to sort of go down every avenue, but, um, yeah, that's so strange. Cause my, my thought was when you were telling me the story is like, wow, if you threw a rock up at it, you know, would the rock just pass through it? Like it was a hologram. Uh, mm, I don't think so. It, it was a real helicopter. It actually was seen one other time. Uh, about eight or nine months later, I got a report of an of a antique yellow helicopter um, traveling up Highway 17. But it's funny you should mention the government because it was uh, it seemed to be above and slightly behind a uh, an army camouflage colored army truck. Huh. This is so funny because it was like this this kind of cascading bunch of things. You know, like it just seems like the, the these kind of uh, military. Uh, you get these little military details that kind of creep their way into these stories, and I never qu know quite to, what to make of that stuff. Yeah, I got tons of them. Uh, my database on my website has dozens and dozens and dozens of reports of military type activity that that seem to be dovetailing with uh, you know real bizarre sort of UFO cattle mutilation, uh, light orbs, uh, you know type type uh, accounts. So. There may be some sort of connection in there, maybe some weird kind of uh, glitch in the software, <laughs> in, yeah. in the reality program or something that, that that somehow has a governmental kind of face on it. But that could just be a symbol, just to uh, just to throw us off. I think the government loves it when when uh, people think that they're solely responsible for a lot of the weird stuff that goes on in our reality. I think that they they're pretty. Uh, pretty happy to claim responsibility for stuff that possibly they have nothing to do with just just because it gives them more control in the situation and more power yeah the the, the, the military thing to me is like a, is like a funny bottomless pit because I, I just think that the best job in the pentagon would be the guy that sits in the basement and says let's mess with the ufo folks you know and uh and just you know make up funny fake documents and and uh you know funny false stories that would just lead researchers astray so i'm very suspect to to uh to believe wholeheartedly, you know, like the, the military conspiracy stories that, that are just a wash on the internet. So, yeah. Well, well John Keel had some very interesting events occur to him back in the uh, mid to late sixties when he was investigating the Point Pleasant uh, Mothman sightings uh, down there on the Ohio River. Uh, he would like he was doing pretty much commuting back and forth from uh, New York and going down and doing his investigative trips down to uh, West Virginia. And on, on one of his early trips, he was going down, and he was really tired. He'd driven, you know, the whole way pretty much in a straight shot, and he, he was kind of wondering, well, where am I going to grab a room? And so he's driving down just, you know, deciding which motel he was going to stop in, you know. And he just picked one at random, and he, and he pulled in, and the guy says, oh, you're Mr. Keel. Uh, we've got messages here for you, and somebody already made a reservation for you. Oh, I love that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I mean, that's that has this. Uh, there's something associated with this phenomenon that reminds me. I don't know how to put it. This is tough to articulate. But the but the trickster thing and these kind of stories and have the um that sort of open ended uh, feeling of a spooky campfire story. D does right, that... or or a Hollywood screenplay. Well, a Hollywood screenplay is usually tidier. You know what I mean? A Hollywood screenplay usually has a has a has a an ending that's all buttoned up. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, the the bridge fell, and 
thirty something people. Died. Well, I guess that's true. Yeah. So that, that that particular story has a has a punchline with a great big exclamation point at the end. Um, well, that was actually it was supposed to be. Uh, I think the Pope was supposed to be assassinated or die, and instead the uh, uh, the the Silver Bridge uh, fell in Point Pleasant. A lot of people died. Yeah. No, I, I've 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 read that book, and and uh, yeah, it's funny. I have. I think I I don't know what. I think I have all of John Keel's books. I'm turning my head here. I'm looking up at my bookshelf and. And uh, they're all lined up there. And uh, I went through a crazy reading frenzy um, about a decade do the, ago. Do you have the Eighth Tower? No. That was his kind of his last major original book. Uh, definitely see if you can find a copy of that. Huh. I don't have that one. Um, hey, so so you talked about an event where where the uh, helicopter was seen on Highway 17 in uh, the valley, and that was in, was that associated with any other kind of odd occurrence, or was just sighted? Yeah. Um, I'd have to go back and check my database, but uh, um, I, I I seem to remember that spring we had um, we had, uh, well geez, for six years we had incredible activity from 93 through 99, but I think that particular spring was was unusually uh, heavy in terms of reports. Um, that would have been about the height of the beginning of the height of it, because ninety four, ninety five, ninety six. I mean, I I was getting uh, up to seventeen calls a day. Uh, on, that was right at the height of uh, of quite a flurry of reports that were going on, and then boom, somebody reports a strange, you know little helicopter, yellow helicopter following an army truck up seventeen. <laughs> it's like, oh boy. You know, here we go again. To, uh, to make of uh, these events, I really think that they're indicative of something uh, much more mysterious, much more complicated, much stranger than we could possibly uh, explain with just little green men, uh, you know, with bald heads and almond-shaped big black eyes from Zeta Reticuli or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, so here's the, the – so the um, – are you familiar with a fellow named Christopher Knowles who has a website called The Secret Sun? Mm, I'm not familiar with his work. I, of course, have heard the name. But, okay, uh, he he he. Uh, he's an interesting guy. He does a lot of um, you know, looking into pop culture, and he he's peripherally looks into the UFO thing and such. But he's a uh, he's. It's really funny. He's particularly interested in the number seventeen and the number thirty three as they relate to like paranormal events. Uh, and uh, when you said it was Highway Seventeen, I just had to laugh uh, because my event took place on Highway Thirty Three. So. Whatever that means, I don't know. That's one of those things that just these little numbers just keep on cropping up. And yeah. this. okay, hey, here you told a story. Um, you know, this is funny. The the only three uh, coast to coast episodes I've ever listened to all the way. There's only three of them, and one was you, one was Mac Tony's, and the other one was Jacques Vallée. So, um, wow, you're in good company. So, yeah, uh, and uh, hey, I'm during. You told a story about a. Uh, uh, taking a shower and seeing something? Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, that was weird. That was one of the weirder things I think that's uh, ever happened to me. Um, I was called in by a real uh, mover and shaker socialite uh, who lived in uh, Crestone, little town I lived in. She was uh, married to a guy very high up in the United Nations. Uh, but she uh, she had a a falling out with a uh, a Native American uh, medicine man, and I guess um, they were supposed to have some sort of dealing together, and, and she was going to help out with some sort of 
arrangement or I'm not exactly sure uh, if I should go into much detail on, on why she had a falling out, but let's just say that they, uh, they uh, agreed to disagree and um, it didn't end uh, very pleasantly, I guess. Uh, and uh, a short time later, I'm not even sure I'd have to check my notes, but it was some weeks later, a very, very uh, scary, uh, what looked like a black magic uh, occult talisman was left uh, near her house, uh, obviously meant for, for her. And uh, it involved some uh, animal remains that were occult-tinged, shall we say, were left uh, in with this particular part of a skeleton. And, uh, of course, she was pretty freaked out by this. And... Uh, for some reason, she thought that I uh, could help with this, and so she took me up and had me, uh, you know, brought me in on. It. Of course, the first thing I said was, "Let me see it." And she goes, "Well, we, you know, we destroyed it. We instantly got rid of it." So there really much I could do, uh, just based on a kind of a general description of the thing. So you know, I did a little bit of uh, cleansing uh, work and some banishment stuff, and and some other. Uh, kind of ceremonial stuff that I know how to do. And, you know, thinking, hey, you know, at the very least, this might give them some peace of mind. I had no idea whether, you know, what I was dealing with, except it looked Native American and based on their description and seemed pretty scary. Mm-hmm. So I think a couple, three months went by. I think this would have been in the early summer. And then in that following fall, uh, I was, um, I lived in a house that was uh, completely, uh, out in, into the valley about two miles. I had no trees around me. I had complete 360-degree view uh, of the horizon. I was in a giant elk meadow. Um, I could see, you know, all directions, uh, with, you know, in the mountain ranges, just gorgeous panorama of the Sangre de Cristos and probably similar to what you have the Tetons. And, you know, I, I uh, you know, I didn't have any real neighbors that were close to me. Nearest neighbor was over a quarter mile away. And, um, I a, um, a house that had a um, pretty, <laughs> pretty weak solar system, uh, solar panels, uh, you know, DC system, electrical system, and was off the grid. And uh, I was just renting, and and they hadn't finished the upstairs bathroom yet, so I, I had to take showers in the greenhouse, uh, which you know was on the southwest side of the house. So one night I'd come home from work in construction. I was you know pretty pretty tired, you know, from a hard day at work and hadn't been drinking or doing any partying or anything like that and just wanted to, you know, take a shower, clean all the grime from the day off. And uh, it was right there at dusk. And and uh, I was in there with a 25-watt bulb sort of lighting up the greenhouse, taking a shower there. And uh, the the greenhouse had these big, you know, plate glass windows that went across, you know, the whole length of it, which is about 30 feet. And uh, um. As I was there, all soaked up, I saw this form glide, not walk, but glide across the front of the window. And it looked like um, the upper half looked like a cross between a deer and a human. There was a big, impressive rack of antlers, and uh, it was definitely on two legs. Uh, It had a face. I couldn't really make out much detail, but it appeared to have like a cross between a human face and a deer face. Uh, Very... Uh, freaky looking, uh, shall we say, and it 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 glid across three of these plate glass windows before it went out of the light. Uh, the light was shining through the windows and illuminated this form. 
And uh, I'll tell you, <laughs> you know, I can identify with Janet Lee and the psycho. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the shower is a vulnerable place. Yeah, it, it, real vulnerable. And uh, I'll tell you, I I don't even think I rinsed off. I got out of there so fast. Uh, uh, it it was very disconcerting uh, to see this. And um, at the time, I I didn't, you know, uh, it, it was freaky. And I but I didn't equate it with the with the um, request by this woman to do, you know, to help her out with this particular uh, weird talisman that was found. But it was only later on that I started to think, well, maybe maybe the two events are involved uh, with each other because I guess what I witnessed was a classic um, skinwalker form uh, in terms of descriptions of skinwalkers uh, and even petroglyphs of skinwalkers uh, show a, a walking half-human, half-deer uh, creature uh, with a rack of antlers and you know if i had been maybe out picking mushrooms or you know, sure. I don't know licking frogs or something maybe i could i could explain it away but uh i just you know put in a nice hefty long day work and i was i was tired but i was still you know pretty alert and later on a, a friend of mine came over and, and she and i were sitting there i was telling her about this and then we had this weird um i call them prairie dragons for lack of a better term it's a uh, semi uh opaque kind of translucent uh undulating form uh that people see around uh the east side of the San Luis Valley um you only see them briefly for a second or two and and it appeared to come in through the dog door uh which we were both standing right there i mean it was you know 3 feet away from us and we we kind of heard a whine like a dog whining and uh these two events happened within two hours, maybe, of each other. And, and the prairie, uh, this prairie dragon image—is is it like something you could draw, or is it just something like a like a shadow of light, or a, or a lack of? It's it's like a um, a tapered. It's like a sea slug. It's kind of tapered to both ends. Uh, the middle it looks to be the most opaque, and as you go out towards the end, um, it, it becomes more translucent. It it undulates when it moves. Uh, almost like a dolphin swimming uh uh they're about oh foot and a half two feet long wow uh, they travel they travel about i don't know six to inches to a foot off the ground they don't leave tracks animals uh sense them and, and respond to them in fact uh um the not the nearest house to me where, where i live there but two houses away which is about a half a mile away um this guy saw him uh, dozens and dozens of times, and his dog would even try to chase them. Um, I saw one actually when I was sanding his floor. I was redoing uh, the floors in his house, and and I, I, I had seen these things out of the corner of my eye a bunch of times, but I, I just never paid any attention to it. I think it was just a bird or a rabbit or something, and then, you know, I never paid any, any any mind. But I happened to be coming out of the house, and I I was looking right at it when it appeared and disappeared, and uh, there was just no question in my mind that. Uh, that these are uh, some manifestation of, of something, um, not not just a figment of my imagination. And, and I did more research and, and investigation. So I found out that many people were seeing these things, but nobody nobody really paid them any attention because you know nine times out of ten you're seeing them out of your peripheral vision, so you can you know you have plausible deniability. You can just say, well, you know, it was just my eyes playing a trick on me, or it was like a bird or a rabbit or something. But I look directly at one before and seen it and um they've been reported as in in groups as as many as, as 60 um there's one incident where a person almost had a car they went through a whole herd of them went right through them like they were you know not not there 
um, but they can see them. This is so strange because I feel like I, I, I'm uh, pretty savvy with uh, you know paranormal stuff. I'm fascinated by this stuff, and I've never heard these stories. Yeah, that's that's pretty weird. Um, the name actually was was uh, coined by a, a Navajo guy um, who grew up on the res down there. And uh, he's half Navajo. I think his dad was German. His mom was Navajo. And and uh, he's in my, my second book, Out of the Valley. Uh, he was a prospector down on the Rio Grande, uh, just below the border into New Mexico in the valley. And uh, and I described this thing to him, and he goes, "Oh, that's the you know the the natives call that a prairie dragon. So that's the term that I've been using uh, to describe them. I've never heard anybody else." Uh, use the term nor have i ever seen any mention of uh you know this type of you know phenomena ever i've never seen it uh, referenced or mentioned anywhere so it's one of those unique uh unique things to the san luis valley I mean, it's yeah it's interesting there's a there's a mountain range near me called the absorcas and uh, uh which is that that mountain range makes up the uh, eastern border of yellowstone and uh i've talked to a few people who have the experience, and in, in, uh, that's where I teach. I teach for an outdoor school. Now, sometimes I've spent I've spent up to a month at a time out there. It's really pretty country. Um, but I've talked to a few people, and this is anecdotal, so I can't I can't back this up with with direct witnesses, uh, except for what people have told me. Uh, but they said they've been traveling in the backcountry, and they get kind of in a fog, and they're doing map and compass reading, and and uh, you know, so they have their 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 position fixed on a map. And then they'll sort of be in the fog, and then they'll come out of the fog, and they'll be like miles off where they should have been. Yeah, I've heard stories like that. Yeah, and this this same place has a which seems like it's sort of seeped into a little local folklore, but uh, sightings of what people refer to as the little people, uh, oftentimes little right. people with big hats. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, and there's tons of them all through the uh, all through the Rocky Mountains. Uh, the chapter in my book on elementals, I thought it would be all about, you know, Celtic uh, gnomes, fairies, uh, leprechauns, that sort of thing. But most of the chapter is about Rocky Mountain uh, elemental forms. Wow. Yeah. Oh, and I'll just jump back to that fellow, um, Christopher Knowles. He has a very interesting uh, story about um, having a high fever and then um, seeing a, as a boy, and then seeing a, a leprechaun appear at the base of his bed. And he said it was pretty freaking terrifying. And it wasn't uh, like a, a misty image of a leprechaun. He said that thing was really standing in his room. Um, I just think this is fascinating that these, that, oh, I mean, it's 2008, right? And we're supposed to be, you know, living in this society uh, controlled by our, our trust in science and, and the, uh, the, the smart thinkers that have, uh, you know, uh, PhDs at the end of their names. And uh, and instead, it's almost just yeah, the opposite. The <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost just the opposite. It seems like that stuff is is uh, I don't know how to say this. It, as I've stepped into this, and as I've started looking into my own experiences, I've gone out and and uh, been in contact with a handful of folks, and gone and done a few, very few sort of UFO reports while I go and visit folks. And um, the thing that I found is that if that all you need to do is just ask a little bit, and this stuff just gushes out. You know, I have stories of you know, tell a friend of mine. You know, like, oh, here's what I'm dealing with. This is what's going on in my life these days. He said, oh, you should talk to my next-door neighbor. And and uh, so I walk across the yard, and I knock on the next-door neighbor's door. And him and his wife, you know, tell me these, like, heavy uh, abduction experiences. It, it seems like I can't... Uh, can't escape it. I can't escape this stuff. 
you know, the, 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 the present, uh, you know, the pop culture thought is that this stuff is hidden and, and doesn't exist and, and that it's, it's the stuff way at the fringe and the periphery. And I'm, you know, my direct experience is almost the opposite where it seems like this stuff is everywhere. I, I talk to people all the time and they have very strange stories to share. Well, it tends to happen in rural areas where you have less people per square mile, um, I've noticed. And one theory that I have is that um, as we get further along in this empirical world, uh, you know, the urban centers uh, have much more people um, sucking up of what magical energy, if you want to call it, for lack of a better term. There's more, there's less of it to go around in a city. But when you get out into rural areas, there is some sort of natural sort of magical energy, I think, that permeates reality. And since there's less people, there's more per person to go around. And I think that the veil is thin in these areas, and people have a tendency to, to have uh, unusual experiences. I think uh, unusual experiences are, are much more common in rural areas. And, you know, as, as, we, as we start infringing and impinging on, on regions around the planet uh, where these types of things were reported routinely in the past, as we start to develop these areas, I think we, we chase out this, these elemental forms. We chase out this magical quality. And it has to go somewhere. So I think what we're seeing is not only are we seeing uh, more of this magical energy in rural areas to go around, I think it's becoming more and more compressed. I think more of the energy is going there because it has nowhere else to go. Mm -hmm. that, that's why you know I, I have uh, uh, two reports of uh, uh, leprechaun sightings within two weeks in the same uh, basic area on a mountainside. Uh, by two completely, uh, you know, unbeknownst to each other, uh, there was an elk hunter uh, happened to see uh, a leprechaun. He, actually, it spooked a, a it spooked an elk. He was about ready to shoot with his with his bow, and uh, and the leprechaun was sixty feet away and snapped a, tri a twig, and 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 John looked over and saw it, and they locked eyes, and the thing zipped around a tree, and the elk ran off. And and, and when you say, did he give a description of the leprechaun? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. That was very. I mean, like just straight off the cover of Lucky Charms, or yeah. And it, he said it was like a leprechaun on vacation because it, it didn't have any sunblock. Interestingly enough, he said it was uh, sunburned, red hair, uh, about two feet tall. Was dressed in floppy sort of felt clothing with a floppy green hat and, and green clothing and uh, a classical leprechaun description. You know, two weeks later, a family was picnicking just down the hill from there, and they saw one too. Yeah, this stuff this stuff fascinates me because I'm trying to figure out where it's welling up from, uh, and I, that's a question I'll never be able to answer. I, I suspect, but well, um, that's what that that trickster uh, thing is all about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where is? <laughs> hey, um, I'm going to tell another story, and and uh, and because I, I think I can know where this is going to go. So I was down in Moab, Utah, and I'll do this thing where I'll go and sleep outside at night, and I'll sleep under the stars, and I'll ask the universe for a for a uh, for some help. And uh, I'll literally lay in my sleeping bag under the stars. And I'll, before I go to bed, I'll say, okay, universe, I am open and receptive and you give me whatever you got. And I'm open for whatever information you, you, you need me to get right now. Um, and sometimes I have really vivid dreams. I've had some, uh, some really curious results from doing this. Um, and I trust it. Um, and I don't, I don't, um, abuse it. I only actually say it when I really mean it. Um, and I only go out on these little, uh, you know, one night sojourns when I, when I'm really, genuinely open and prepared to get some information. So I'm in, I'm in Moab visiting some friends, uh, and I uh, drive off uh, this highway that goes towards um, Castleton Towers, 
find this beautiful spot off the side of the road, and I kind of drive up off a dirt road a little bit, so I'm off the main highway just a little bit, sleep out under the stars, you know, make that little plea to the universe just as, as I'm laying down to go to bed. I wake up the next morning, nothing, nothing at all. Uh, no dreams, no, no, you know, no curious anything. So I go back to Moab, and I go to the coffee shop, and I fire up my laptop, and I, and I get on the Internet. And the first thing I do is I was just curious what the word Moab meant. Uh, I knew it had some biblical reference, and I was like, so I go right to Wikipedia, and the cover story for Wikipedia is a story about Highway 128 in Utah, and that was where I slept that night, right alongside Highway 128. Uh, and <laughs> now, now the the thing there that was again. the thing that was weird. Now here's the one of the things that in my mind I was composing a little essay to put on the blog, and the essay was about. Um, and this was like during that drive out, you know, to the to uh, to camp that night. The essay was about, and uh, I think the title of the essay is "The Neuron-Like Nature of the Internet," where it just seems to me that the internet is like a carefully shuffled deck of tarot cards. And uh, I just was I was struck by how bizarre that was. Yeah, um, that's one of the things that I talk about in my book. Uh, at the at the end is. The trickster, I think, one of the main jobs of the trickster down, you know, all all the way through recorded history into the prehistory is into the legends and myths of, of trickster forms around the world. One of the main jobs is to supply humanity with, with technology. And I think, um, you know, if the trickster is actually evolving and becoming conscious and self-aware that uh, the tables have been turned, and we may be supplying the trickster with technology. And if that's the case, then what better place for the trickster to dive into than the Internet? And I have a strong suspicion that uh, the internet has some sort of tricksterish conscious quality. And uh, just you know, do an experiment. Um, you know, I first time I tried this, my computer crashed. I went, I did search terms on Google, uh, internet and sentient. And uh, I think my, I'm, I'm pretty sure those were the terms that I used. And the uh, and my computer just chunked. It just crashed. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, yeah, I you know again, uh, how, you know, how do we know that the trickster isn't uh, isn't uh, becoming self aware and and maybe, you know, diving into the CERN project, the Large Hadron Collider, or uh, and and is what's behind all these weird in, you know, just, you know, strange things that have been happening uh, since they've been trying to get that thing up and running. I think actually they're they're trying again today. Or um, the Human Genome Project, or or the state of the art in cloning. How do we know the trickster isn't possibly attempting to manifest a physical form uh, uh, to then inhabit, uh, you know, like a cloned form? Maybe, maybe that's the Antichrist. Who knows? You know, we, we we really don't know. And I think that this this is really interesting territory. Uh, nobody is 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 covering um, this angle. Nobody is really researching down this particular path of, of thinking. And and I think it's. Uh, it's wide open. Uh, it's, it's very exciting to me to, uh, to to think of these things from an outside-of-the-box perspective. And, and, you know, this is all closed system phenomena. This is, not, this is not something that's coming from outside of the closed system. And although I'm not factoring out UFOs, uh, one thing that I, I do suggest, um, you know, in these uh, talks that I've been giving, radio interviews and stuff, is that perhaps UFOs and, and their pilots are coming here and then utilizing trickster tactics and, and tools and methodology um, that are tried and true uh, in terms of us as culture being affected by it and using these uh, 
this type of uh, approach to uh, for some unknown agenda to uh, you know slowly over over time uh, layer on uh, on the collective these these collective experiences that are possibly drawing us off planet as some sort of evolutionary imperative. Um, my mentor David Perkins uh, strongly believes that the UFO phenomenon is is here to um, get us to go out and see see the galaxy basically and uh it makes sense to me uh you know i think the trickster is tied in not only to the human uh collective uh, unconscious but could also be triggered or somehow um i guess sort of uh brought along by the planet itself i i strongly suspect that uh, that the planet gaia um is a superorganism and is sentient and if that's true then perhaps the trickster is a some sort of bridge between that sentience and uh and the human collective, I, I often equate the communication grid, the, the power grid, the internet, um, as being a slowly developing nervous system for the planet. So, and, and, case, and a nervous system that that um, I mean, I'm just thinking of the the weird soup that we're like immersed in right now that we've never been immersed in before. Uh, you know that 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 uh, cell phone communications and wireless internet communications are are zipping around in our ether. And this is the same ether that we share uh, in ways that this is absolutely new to human consciousness. It's never, I mean, I guess, you know, the first radio waves are, what, 100 years old or something like that. But, but at present, it's, it's off the charts compared to what it has ever been. Yeah, and it's not necessarily healthy. I, I tossed my cell phone a while ago because I, I just have a really bad feeling about uh, holding that <laughs> microwave device uh, you know. Up to my ear, which is a direct channel into my brain. And your brain, I, I, yeah, and I'm very cautious too. I, I have a cell phone, and I rarely use it. I use it when yeah. I travel a little bit. Yeah, um, and and I always try to use it on speakerphone too. When you start feeling that thing getting hot against your head, you know, there's got to be some sort of physiological, uh, you know, effect of of you know these highly uh, energized microwaves. So. <laughs> Yeah, and and I think that it's one of the things that I think that 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 a, that a good engineer or technician could solve, right? You know, they just figure out a little solution. You know, just make a little. Well, uh, they do have one. It's called a wave shield. It filters out ninety eight percent of the, the or ninety five percent of the of the the bad effects of the uh, actually the microwaves. But you know, we're going to be seeing. I, I predict we're going to be seeing a uh, a real severe spike and and rise in um, side of the head brain tumors. I, I agree. I I mean I I um. We're already seeing it. Yeah, and whether that's just a, a, a nervous pessimist inside me speaking up, um, I don't know. You know, it very, but um, but I sense that. I just sense that we're we're dabbling. You know, we're 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 you know the train is going too fast, and and I just feel like that there's a cliff at the end of uh, of the train track here, um, as far as like how quickly we're developing these technologies. Right. We all need a pair of wings to sprout so we can fly off when the we can fly off when the train like yeah. Well, who knows what that goes means? Goes over so, the cliff. You know, <laughs> Um, Be like a butterfly. Yeah. How is the book selling? I'm doing good, actually. I'm. Uh, I guess I'm about ready to go into a second printing. So. Uh, oh, that's I, just great. That's great. I guess it's doing good. Um, it's pretty dense material. It's not the easiest subject uh, for most people to wrap their heads around, but uh, you know, I think uh, I did a fairly good job of presenting my, uh, you know, my insight or whatever and uh my kind of, it's kind of a unified field theory for paranormal phenomena and uh there's lots of holes in the theory i still have some back engineering to do but um 
I, I think it it passes the smell test, and uh, and I've had some uh, pretty uh, pretty interesting responses to it. I've I've had people, you know, totally short circuit and freak out and hang up on me. Uh, you know, interviewers. I've had uh, other people be really jazzed and really inspired uh, to do their own research in, into the subject. And you know, at the very least, if I can shake people up into thinking and 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 uh, you know, kind of viewing things with a different pair of glasses, uh, then you know, I think I've done a, a, an effective job of at least you know inspiring creative thinking, uh, which is probably about the <laughs> the most I could hope for in this realm. It's it's really difficult when you when you're talking about something that's not male, it's not female, it's not good, it's not bad, it's not black, it's not white, it's not young, it's not old, it's liminal, it stands you know underneath the threshold. Um, it doesn't go one way or the other way. It just kind of sits there, uh, and it probably dances really well. So I, I think, by literal definition, ja Michael J Jackson could be uh, considered a trickster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I'm impressed with the book. I'm very impressed with it. It's it's very dense, and you're right. At the same time, it's um, uh, you know, it seems to cover a lot of bases. And it must have been on your end. I mean, it must have felt like you were entering, entering the labyrinth or something like that once you started looking into this. Uh, yeah, I was really surprised. I had no idea what I was uh, in for when I signed on to do the book. Uh, I had no idea where I was going with it until about halfway through, and then all of a sudden it dawned on me: Oh my God, <laughs> you know this is, you know this this could be really important uh, research. Um, nobody has really looked. I mean, v uh, Valet and Keel and Carl Jung and and George Hansen, who wrote Trickster in the Paranormal, uh, Paul Radin, who wrote the seminal work uh, in the fifties, The Trickster. Uh, none of them equated the UFO phenomenon, for instance, with tricksterism. Uh, Keel came close. He said it's trickster-like, but nobody ever made the connection between modern manifestations of phenomenal events and trickster energy. So I'm, I think I'm kind of the first one to really do that, and and I do, you know, come up with a lot of pretty compelling evidence to uh, support the theory. So I'm pretty proud of it. Now, if you if you ha you told some stories, and I've heard some other stories, and and the only book I've read besides the Trickster book is uh, Secrets of the Mysterious Valley, but um, and I've listened to your audio interviews, and uh, if you hadn't have had these firsthand experiences, these paranormal uh, firsthand experiences, would you have been able to write this? No, no way. Okay, well, that's a quick, that's an easy answer. Yeah. So I kind of knew yeah. that going in. I, th I figured that's what you're going to say. Yeah, no, I, I several key events had happened early on. The helicopter one being the, the first one. Uh, the next one again was was uh, a cattle mutilation case where uh, just inexplicable um, herd behavior occurred. Just freaked everybody out that was standing there. A bunch of ranchers and myself. The cows started doing ritual around the the dead animal, and uh, it. it Without these these things happening, I I I would still think that we're dealing with aliens from another planet, and I'd be a true believer, uh, you know, touting exopolitical agendas and, and the rest of it, like most people are in this field. Uh, I I would not, I would not be an out of the box thinker uh, along these lines. No way. What's your um, insights into like owl sightings? Well. Um, you know, owls, are, that's one thing that I did. Uh, I, there's a little section in the book on owls. Um, owls are very, uh, very interesting. They're they're very tricksterish in their own right. Um, for instance, they're the only animal that uh, is, is completely silent when they fly. Uh, mm -hmm. And they have a, they have a, uh, their, their flight feathers are, are alternated with little down feathers. So like little down, like a little duckling would have. And it right, creates yeah. this silent effect. And it's very spooky. I've seen a lot of owls. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's kind of nature's stealth technology um uh 
my 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 cat I think just got uh, attacked by an owl a couple months ago, and he he got he got clawed up pretty bad. But um, owls I think are are, are real enigmatic. Um, you know, if you look at Native American traditions, um, you know, owls are are very uh, not well considered. Uh, you hear an owl hoot, someone's going to die is the basic, uh, I guess, generalization. Um, but that doesn't hold true around the world. Owls are um, have a special place, I think, in in most cultures. Um, uh, one of the things that that bothers me about um, about some of the older traditions involving owls and ceremonial magic, for instance. Uh, is the big 50-foot stone owl that's uh, at uh, the Bohemian Grove site where they, the rich conservative mucky mucks go every summer and do their, uh, you know, dress up in togas and see who can pee, pee the farthest in the woods, that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, <laughs> okay. uh, but, but they do they do these, like, really very um, kind of scary rituals underneath a 50-foot effigy of a, a stone owl. Yeah. So, I mean, owls are very powerful magically. Uh and I think that um, that owls, uh, when they do appear, I I I, I take uh, real notice of any evidence of an owl being around. I, I just I go on high alert when when I know there's owls around for whatever reason. That might be just my own personal problem. But no, and I, I agree. I agree. This I, here I'll tell you an owl story. Um, I uh, live in uh, right near the Tetons, and I work for this outdoor school. And there was a young woman that was working at the outdoor school, and and um, she and I had a lot in common as far as uh, um, she was a young artist and everything. So, uh, And she hadn't camped much in the mountains. And I go camping all the time. I just go out for one night. It's super easy for me. It's so convenient. Um, and so I said, we should go out. We should go out camping. So um, in a way, it was a first date. Um, so we went into the mountains and uh, uh, got up pretty high on this uh, a shelf above the tree line, you know, right at the edge of the tree line. And... Um, Sun was setting, and I had I had uh, been working all summer in the mountains. This was the fall, so it was I felt totally at peace, and I was in my element. So I was cooking with a little teeny camp stove on this on this rock, and the sun was setting. And I remember we were having a conversation. It was getting kind of intense, like it was one of those conversations where we were talking about deep philosophical stuff. And it seemed at right at that moment, it was right at the moment where I was like, "Wow, this is an impressive person." Like I had that thought. Uh, and right at that moment, three owls appeared, and they flew around us, and they um, they landed near us, and they they uh, flew up, flew around us the whole time we ate, and they would um, uh, and, and it, it went on to fully till it was dark, and we didn't take a shelter. It was a it was a beautiful night, and uh, you know we could look at the weather and just just know that it wasn't going to rain. So we just slept out under the stars, and and we were literally lying on our backs, and these owls would silently fly above us, so the stars would black out for that moment. Um, and it seemed like they were really close to our faces when they were flying above us. And I, I uh, wrote up a little essay about this and tried to make sense of it. We were kind of both kind of mystified by this whole thing. And uh, and I since have asked her like, what were we talking about when the owls appeared? And she replied, I didn't want to, I didn't want to, uh, uh, you know, front load her too much. And she said that um, she was trying to articulate, the owls appeared exactly when she was art- trying to articulate her deepest feelings about God. Hmm. I thought that was so interesting. So, I'll jump, this This story goes on. So, uh, um, less than a week later, I said, let's go camping again. So we went into the mountains and uh, camped at an to- entirely different spot. And this this time it was cold. It was pretty cold that night. So, um, the sun was setting. 
Oh, said, you got to snuggle. Yeah, well, so so it's, so I said, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna uh, let's let's walk up to this hilltop, and it's uh, we can see the hilltop from our camp. Again, we were above tree line, and we'll watch the view of the sunset, and we'll walk back to camp. And the act of walking up that hill will warm us up, so we'll, we'll, we won't be chilly when we go to sleep. And she said, great. So we walk up this hill, we get to the top of the hill, we're watching the sunset, and three owls appear next to us and fly around and land next to us and, and like basically stand next to us and watch us. Um, That's and- really unusual. That is really unusual. So, and this is happening two times in a row. Two times in less than a week. I, I have that same story. Um, I can retell that same story in various forms a couple more times uh, from this summer. And uh, one of the times it was five owls that flew around me like that. And I was each time I was with other people. And uh, it is very unusual. Um, I've talked to a lot of people. Nobody seems to have this story, and it just seems to be reoccurring with me. Uh, and I, it's funny. I asked a, uh, uh, a psychic I, uh, about what the, you know, what, what did the owls mean? And she went into her, into her little light channel trance, and she basically said, you know, my, my uh, source guides are telling me. And she, all she could say was surprise, surprise. And she said, it's like a surprise party. You know, when you go to a surprise party, and, and, the, and your friends kind of say, surprise, we're here. And that's as much as she could tell me. Sounds like the chicks do to me. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Wake up. Wake up. Yeah. Take and notice. Start taking notes. So, so from from your experience, have you been led at all by this by these experiences? Um, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I think I would be sort of dishonest to say no. Um, but at the same time. If I did say yes, I wouldn't be able to qualify that and say I was being led by X or Y. Uh, I do feel like I'm on some sort of path that uh, that I'm almost destined to be on, uh, but I'm not exactly sure, you know, what the what the ultimate goal or <laughs> result is, other than to get people thinking, you know, other yeah. than some generalization like that. I, I really I'm. I don't know. I just wish it paid more. Well, how? Wish, you, yeah. Well, yeah, good luck. Whatever I wish now. So that's that's. Uh, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the trickster to show up with a Samsonite suitcase filled with old wrinkled hundreds. You know. Yeah, that may never happen. But uh, well, no, and yeah, I, you never know. Yeah, careful what you you know. Careful what you wish for. In yeah. Sense, but uh, but careful what you don't wish for as well. Because I'll say that these books, you know, I'm, I've got these two books are in my hand right now. Um, Stalking the trickster and then the uh, secrets of the mysterious valley. These are both big, fat dense books and uh it, i mean you ain't sitting on your hands uh doing this stuff these are these are these are you know no, proud the accomplishments trickster, the trickster book is is uh, almost a reference book i mean uh you, you could uh you get quite an education uh about tricksters just you know in general in in terms of my my expanded definition of tricksters i mean there's a lot of stuff in there and I did, did make a point of I couldn't afford to have an index done. I was, that was my next question. I was going to yeah. needle you a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I really wanted uh, an index, but it's pretty expensive to do that, and I didn't have time because I was too late, two two months late with the manuscript. But um, I did. I, I put in bold all the uh, the names of the various trickster forms, so um, so you can fairly easily go through. Uh, and I, the chapters are laid out in such a way that it's pretty easy to go back and identify particular forms. Um, the approach that I took as an investigative journalist for um, the Mysterious Valley books was was pretty straight ahead. I mean, I 
I had hundreds and hundreds of reports to choose from, and I just strung them into a narrative. I kind of loosely uh, modeled my approach after uh, Keel's book. I was going to say, you, you, you include yourself in yeah. these stories? And I think that's really helpful. I think that, that makes the narrative, uh, uh, brings it to life a little bit. Yeah, it does. And, and that's one of the reasons why I was able to get a major publisher to, to you know, to publish my first two books. Um, but that's that's easy. I mean, that's easy to do. I, I, I did not uh, stick my neck out and, and do a lot of what ifing or, or or trying to explain what I was running around investigating. Um, I took more of an anthropological approach in that um, I just, you know, tried to, to the best of my ability, um, select the, the cases that I felt were the most compelling and, and the most uh, the most important, um, you know, in terms of a subjective kind of view on them. But with the trickster book, um, I had to think, and I had to do a lot of thinking, and I really had to uh, to work. And um, I ended up <laughs> probably going through a jar of ibuprofen because there there were long stretches where my head would literally hurt from from working on this project. I mean, I would get headaches from thinking so much. And I'm not, I'm not the type of person that walks around with a lot of mind thoughts, you know, mind words uh, in their heads. Um, I, I tend to be more of kind of an autopilot sort of person, allow my, my higher, my higher consciousness to, uh, to do a lot of my, my processing. Um, I, I think I'm fairly uh, unique in that way. Uh, most people uh, have a lot of word thoughts and stuff in their heads. Um, so I had to dive into that word thought realm a lot, a lot more than I'm used to. And at one point, I told you know my my mentor, I said, David, man, I don't know if I can do this. My th this book is making my head hurt. Well, it's <laughs> and, interesting because because reading these books uh, side by side, you know the and I'm in the act of reading Stuck in the Trickster right now, and I and I read Secrets of the Mysterious Valley. There is there it's a nice progression. I mean, the, the, the Secrets of the Mysterious Valley is not a UFO book, you know what I mean? It's not a, uh, uh, you know, like a standard, um, you know, UFO report book. It, it, it delves into some pretty weird stuff, uh, well beyond, like, you know, the, what would be the cut-and-dry uh, nuts-and-bolts right. UFO phenomenon. And so the, the, I mean, these just, you know, you can just finish up one and just step right into the other. It's a, it's a really strong progression, I thought. Well, one of the, one of my motivations for the trick book um, was that you know for years people dog me and say well you know my my friend best friend from college you know he he devoured the book in a couple of sittings and just loved it he says oh man this is so good but but it's like it's like you know making love with your girlfriend all night and not coming <laughs> it didn't go anywhere I didn't you didn't say anything you didn't tell me what was going on you know and and I. I needed that that big uh, that big gush at the end, and and uh, and all you know, those first two books are like that. I mean, I, I really you know was very careful not to stick my neck out and try to uh, you know go into the to the room, able to you know I didn't say anything that I couldn't demonstrate uh, with the data, and and so stalking the trickster is kind of the you know is kind of my. Uh, my my gift to all those readers who who felt that they you know they they were left wanting and uh you know people say well what do you think's going on in the San Luis Valley well stalking the tricksters is is my uh my my theory about uh about all that weird divergent uh stuff that that I experienced and that you know hundreds of people in the valley experienced uh so it it is kind of my uh it's kind of my epilogue in in my theory that explain all these 
wonderfully weird, you know, event. Uh, and it, it does, it has some staying power. I think the more people that read it, the more that people maybe, t- uh, you know, consider the possibility. I think, um, I think it's going to stick with them. And I, I think it has some, some legs, put it that way. Oh, good, good. Well, that was that was because they do they do blend together really well. Now, here, go ahead and tell folks your, and I'll I'll make sure to post all this stuff online too. But what's your website? Our Strange Planet. Um, o U R Strange Planet. We do have a strange planet, and it belongs to all of us. So, ourstrangeplanet.com, and uh, there's tons of stuff. My entire database from the San Luis Valley is on there. Um, just pages and pages and pages of all the reports that I went out on for for years, and. Uh, and lots of uh, interesting articles that I've uh, been culling over the years and, and putting in there and stuff that uh, is a little bit, uh, uh, it's different from most of your paranormal UFO sites. I do include some politics and strange weather and, and scientific uh, developments and, and you know, some cool um, philosophical uh, you know, reality-based um, what-ifing and, and, uh, and some really cool guest editorials and stuff. And, you know, I try to I try to keep it keep. Uh, I'm pretty objective when I when I list a lot of the uh, you know put some of the articles in there and stuff. But I, I think I've done a good job collecting uh, a lot of really pertinent information that, at the very least, it's fascinating. And uh, I think people, you know, you can learn a lot from it. Yeah, it's interesting because I've sort of started to play the role of investigator a little bit, and I find that I'm actually kind of lousy at it. And and uh, it was interesting to read you had um, I think 13 points for an investigator. Yeah, my 13 rules of investigation. I, I'm surprised more people didn't uh, didn't make a, a bigger deal out of that. I'm quite proud of that. I listed out in the first book 13 suggested rules of investigation that uh, that uh, in the order that I I realized them. And uh, of course, the ones that people tend to zero in on are number six: always assume a mundane explanation until proven extraordinary. Well, that's yeah. no fun. That's you're never going to get on coast to coast with that kind of. I guess you got on coast to coast. I should be careful what I say. So, right. And number five is also good. It's impossible to be too objective when scientifically investigating claims of the unusual. Um, and um, and I'll also add that that by the mere fact that you've had these paranormal experiences, you have you know crossed the line. It's got to be very difficult for you to play the role of of of, of objective. Um. Actually, no. I I, I kind of have fun doing that. Um, you know, I, I, I do feel that I am very objective, and um, I think that the culture, uh, you know, we're all front-loaded to assume certain things, and if, you, if you're if you truly objective and honest with yourself, uh, it's actually pretty, uh, it makes the process a lot easier, because you just weigh, you know, the pros and cons of a particular argument based on the data, and you generally come up with, with I think, fairly fairly spot-on uh, interpretations of, of people's experiences. Uh, I mean, there are, number four is a good one, too. Always be ready for anything, anytime. Look for coincidences when investigating claims of the unusual. Often there may be a synchronistic element at work. And that, that one, number four, I think is ties right in with the trickster phenomenon. And, uh, and that ties and in with my experiences as I start to do exactly, this stuff. Exactly. And everybody has these these synchronistic, coincidental things that happen in their life. And most people just... You know, they don't really give it, pay it much attention, uh, and I, I think that that's uh, doing yourself a disservice. I think all this stuff is very important, especially when when the universe lines it up in a way that makes you sit up and take notice. Uh, there's a reason for that. I know. I know. It's funny. I um, 
I, uh, when I step into the role of investigator, which I've only done a few times, one of the things I'm good at would be to do illustrations, to do like police sketch artist illustrations. I think I'd be really strong in that. And I've done it a little bit with folks and I've enjoyed it. Um, but, uh, I find that I just, um, I don't know whether there's like a needy side to me or like, I'm just so like lost and, and kind of, uh, you know, insecure with my own set of experiences that instead of playing the role of investigator, I just immediately um, become buddies with the folks and you have these like deep heart to hearts. Um, and that seems yeah, to be that, what, that what is I tough. That's tough. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that I learned early on is that you have to kind of keep everybody at arm's length, be friendly, be, um, you know, be accommodating. Uh, but there is a very, very, thin line between becoming too friendly with a witness um, and, and, and keeping them at too much at arm's length. So that, that, that's a tough, uh, I've, I equate that to a bedside manner. It's almost like a doctor sure. uh, at, at the bed, at the bedside of a patient. Um, and, and, and I joke, you know, occasionally that I, sometimes I feel like a, a paranormal shrink of sorts, you know, and, and when people do have a need to, to really, uh, have a cathartic process or to really, you know, cry on your shoulder or, you know, try to have you explain all the mysteries of the universe, uh, you have to be very careful because you might become part of the problem. Uh, I'm not a, a, a professional uh, psychotherapist. Uh, I, I, I don't claim to be. I, I have had uh, more unusual experiences than, than most people. But um, one of the things that I am able to do is is to be like a neighbor, you know, and, and that's one of the things that living in the place that you're investigating is really important because you can have the posture as as being a a concerned you know unjudgmental neighbor um it's only in the ensuing years that then i allow the friendship to develop and and i do keep in touch with people i think the experience is the experiencer is more important than what nuts and bolts thing they're actually experiencing so i always keep that in mind and i i do try to keep up uh there's some of my witnesses that I've known now, you know, close to 15 years. That, that you know, every so often I'll give them a call, and say, "Hey, how, how's it going? What's what's happening? How's your kid doing in school? Or what do you think of the price of hay?" You know. And how, you just know. out of curiosity, how are these folks doing? As far as have they have they, I guess, expanded consciousnesses is is is, a, is it the term I'm going to use? But have they had a like a, an experience that's opened their eyes to to bigger things? Most of them, no. It's only when they get spooky and negative appearing and scary that um, that life changing events tend to happen. There are some exceptions. People, you know, have kind of, you know, felt illuminated or enlightened. Uh, that tends to pass over time. The negative stuff tends to uh, have more impact. Uh, for instance, I had one rancher back in 93, 94. Um, over about an eight-year period, he lost almost 50 head uh, to, you know, various mutilations. And, uh, being the ranch manager, he was kind of in charge of this, so it was, you know, it was his job to not <laughs> allow this stuff to be happening. And you know, the first couple of cases had ritual occult sign around the uh, animal, and uh, that totally freaked him out. He became a born again Christian, super devout. So the negative uh, occurrences, I think, tend to have more impact. Uh, they tend to. Uh, they tend to stick with the, with the witness, I think, longer. Uh, the positive, illuminated type experiences. I think the glow tends to fade over time. Um, I haven't seen anybody go on to try to, you know, found a cult or a church or you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is become you know some world class channel or something. I, I mean, I haven't seen 
I haven't seen extraordinary abilities imparted on witnesses. Um, I know that this has happened, and, and there are examples of that, but but um, you know, I, I think it's uh, pretty rare that you have that. Because that's a that's a question in a way that I would like to see on one of those little uh, checklists, you know, those little questionnaires. Um, yeah, move on, move on. They don't have anything about following up with the witness and how you know how did it psychologically impact you? Or I mean, there's none of that. You know, they're they're just looking for nuts and bolts data, basically. Yeah, like a like a round state or round burn mark in the in the in the cornfield kind of thing. Right. Which you can go out there and take a picture of, and and and, uh, and then you know close the data book because you've got that picture where it seems like there's something. Um, expansive going on and it, it's funny you earlier you said um you know it's not a cathartic process for you to go through this and 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 uh it this is a cathartic process for me this this blog has been a funny um you know uh very public way for me to like wrap my mind around this stuff um well you're, and, you're pretty brave most people sublimate it and they don't want to deal with it directly they they, they don't want to go there um out of sight, out of mind, you know, put it into the closet with the tricksters and the, the devils and the demons and the fairies and the gnomes and the ghosts and stuff, you know. And what I'm attempting to do is open the closet and say, hey, let's take a look at what's inside here and, and, and how it interacts with us. And, you know, most people don't, you know, they have a hard enough time dealing with with just the mundane reality, let alone opening up Pandora's box. Oh, God, and you start mixing, you know, mixing up this, this you know, paranormal stuff, uh, you know, and trying to integrate that into your normal everyday life. And it's a, you know philosophical quandary it's not it's oh, not yeah. easy well it's like a hall of mirrors with a quicksand floor yeah yeah exactly well great i think this went what great um anything else you want to share no no it's fun uh so oh, oh good good it's kind of fun good well thank you um for for saying yes to this 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 went great and i and i really um you know it's funny i as a, as far as like the um you know, there's an intellectual side to my brain, and then there's like a, you know, like a, you know, heart-centered, or how you want to say it. You know, like there's your, you know, there's your logic and there's your gut. Um, and logically, I, I can't make sense of this stuff at all. And from a gut level, um, you know, the way to explain it using the trickster metaphor seems to just resonate, and it just, I just, I latch onto it. it. I trust it in my gut. It seems to be the like a like a like a very tidy answer to to this stuff. Well, you just turned around and you're finally getting a look at that 8,000-pound gorilla that's been sitting in your living room drumming its toes on the coffee table. Yeah, yeah, and in uh, in uh, for better or for worse, that that gorilla is an intimidating thing, you know. So, yeah, it is, and most people would rather go back in the closet where they think it belongs. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it seems like whatever I've done, uh, and it sounds like you've done the same thing in a way, is to to uh, is to uh, you know to sort of look directly at this stuff. Um, well, yeah, that's kind of how I do things. So, for better or for worse. Yeah, no, I, it sounds like you're, we're, we're talking the same same little bit there. Hey, um, thanks a lot. I'll put this up in a few days and I'll edit it down a little bit. And um, cool. I just want to say thanks. Okay, very good. Great. Great talking to you, Mike. Awesome. Bye now. Bye. That concludes that interview. Hey, just um, coming from my own point of view, that was great. I, I listened to it a few times as I edited it. Um, the editing process was a little tricky. We were plagued by phone calls and, and uh, interruptions, and uh, hopefully that didn't um, affect anyone's listening, if you made it this far. I'll also add that um, I'm going to come clean. I haven't read all the book, Stalking the Trickster. I don't know if you could tell. I've, uh, I've uh, only briefly skimmed it and, uh, and indulged myself that way. I'm familiar with Chris O'Brien's stuff through some other interviews. I have read Secrets of the Mysterious Valley all the way through, and I can recommend that highly. 
Um, as I get deeper and deeper into this Stalking the Trickster book, the more and more I like it. Um, once again, recommend it highly. Got a nice take on this very, very strange subject. Once again, I want to thank Christopher O'Brien for taking the time to talk with me. Uh, I feel, in a funny way, like uh, he's a kindred spirit. Um, I relate to him in a, in a, in a kind of deep way. And, uh, and I'm very impressed. I actually have to say I'm jealous of his energy and his dedication to this, uh, to this kind of research. His website is OurStrangePlanet.com. And thanks everyone who made it this far in the interview. Bye now.